0: This week on Home Dunk, author, podcast host, basketball enthusiast and player Sherman Alexi will join us and also we uh, will travel back in time with the Super Bowl. I hit a home
1: dunk. I wish that you had shown up. I played over my head, everything was off the charts. I jumped out the gymnasium and knocked it out the park. I hit, did a handstand, I hit a grand slam, it was a great day for the fans, man. I got three sacks and broke three bats, I gave the crowd money, plus free snacks. I did a hat trick and a backflip, it's on ESPN Classic. And you weren't there, and it hurt me to watch them retire get my jersey, I hit a home dunk.
0: Thank you, Open Mike Eagle. That's Open Mike Eagle doing the theme song to Home Dunk. You can check out Mike's podcast, Secret Skin, right here on the Infinite Guest Podcast Network, infiniteguest.org. I'm John Moe. You probably knew that when you downloaded the uh, podcast. I'm the host of the show. I keep introducing myself as if you were scanning by on a radio dial. Because I've done radio for a very long time, and now I'm adding podcasting to that, and I sometimes forget that the rules are different. Well, hello! We're going to talk to Sherman Alexi here in a little bit, and uh, it's a great conversation. What a great guy, and we're going to talk basketball, and also the Washington, D.C. NFL football team name. Um, but first, we're going to talk about power and we're going to talk about assertions of power in sports in the last week because I think it's pretty interesting. Uh, We're going to talk about the NBA and the NFL. So let's lead off with the NBA and the new executive director of the National Basketball Players Association, the NBBA, or the NBBA. I doubt they pronounce it that way. Uh, Michelle Roberts has taken over as the head of this union, and the union was in severe disarray and a total disaster uh, before she took over. She's new. She also happens to be One of the top trial attorneys in the country, she also happens to be a complete badass uh, who who is throwing some elbows, if I may employ a basketball analogy, uh, right off the bat. She gave an interview to our good friend Pablo Torre of ESPN. He got the scoop on this. Nice work, Pablo. And uh, she basically said the NBA is a player's league. The players are the people that matter in this league, not the owners. The owners matter, maybe, but not as much as the players. She said, why don't we have the owners play half the games? There would be no money if not for the players. Let's call it what it is. there. period would period be period no period money. Uh, 30 more owners can come in and nothing will change the players go, the game will change. So let's stop pretending. So this is in the wake of a huge new TV deal for the NBA. This is the head of the Players Association saying, look, we're the ones who make this go. We're the ones who do this. And the response from the league right away was kind of interesting. They didn't entrench, the The commissioner's office didn't entrench and say, no, this is a owners league this is a league league whatever it is they said no this is a partnership we're all we're all brothers and sisters here let's it's equal parts working together and uh, that's that's how we prosper michelle roberts of the players association is having none of it she is having none of it she's she's saying no the rules need to change for instance the idea of a minimum age to come into the league Right now, the, the the rule is that you have to play for at least a year somewhere else out of high school before you're eligible to play in the NBA. Most of the players then choose college and the uh, the vast system that is college basketball. Uh, some have gone to other minor leagues to play. There's one guy who's who might be the number one draft pick next year who's playing in China this year. Just because he said, yeah, I might as well get paid <laughs> by these Chinese guys uh, instead of uh, pretending that I'm in this for a college education. I'm in this to play in the NBA. So she's saying, look, if, if, uh, if we need – if you can play in the league at 18, like LeBron James or Kevin Garnett or Kobe Bryant, then, uh, then that's what you should be able to do. Uh, farm system of college basketball be damned. And really, with all these things she's saying, with all these things Michelle Roberts is saying, uh, asserting power, she is kind of taking the same approach as actually a lot of same-sex marriage advocates have taken over the last couple of years. Not to say we need a new right. We need to be granted something that we haven't had before. We need to have a – we need to change things uh, and improve things. It's more the tactic of saying – this is already our right. This is already the way things are. Now we need the paperwork to catch up with the reality. We just need this same thing codified. I think when uh the, the real kind of revolutionary argument uh in the same sex marriage issue was when people started saying, look, this is an this is an equal protection clause thing. This is a right that we already have that is not being enforced by the government. And I think that is uh, the sort of the auspices under which a lot of the societal transformation ultimately started occurring because it was a simple, reasonable argument. So Michelle Roberts, probably not inspired by that, but I, I see the parallels, is arguing the same thing. In the NBA, and it's really a refutation of Donald Sterling, the Clippers owner, who was uh, who was ousted, who was tossed out of everywhere for being an, an awful person and uh, a racist. So Donald Sterling had said in some of these awful, awful tapes that uh, these guys owe oh, their living to me. If it wasn't for me, these guys wouldn't be millionaires. Well yeah they would because they would they would have another owner that would would pay them to do the thing the talent is the thing it's not the business guys it's not the investors that are leading to this success so when sterling asserted that the league cracked down on him brand new commissioner adam silver cracked down on him and asserted power of the league over an individual owner. And that was revolutionary. That hadn't happened before. Donald Sterling has been a pig for many, many, many years. And everyone has known it. And David Stern, Silver's predecessor, looked the other way and just let it happen and just enabled it, really. At one point, Donald Sterling just up and moved his team from San Diego to Los Angeles. And Stern just went along with it, ultimately. Kind of protested a little bit. But Sterling had asserted power of an individual owner over the league. Silver asserted power of the league over the individual owner and rode that dude out of town on a rail. Even when people like uh, Mark Cuban of the Mavericks were saying like, I don't know about the precedent we're setting here, (laughs) that we can just run a guy out like that, but yet it was done. So now we have Michelle Roberts of the Players Association asserting power of the players over the league itself it's interesting. You should pay attention to this. This is sports on a grand scale. Meanwhile, over in the NFL, I'm not going to talk too long about Adrian Peterson because I always talk about Adrian Peterson because I live in Minnesota and I have kids and I have strong feelings about this. But Adrian Peterson has been suspended for at least the rest of the year. The door is open for him to be suspended longer. And I have been on record as saying I think Adrian Peterson is a a horrible person or a person who has done horrible things. I think they're inexcusable. I don't think he should ever play in the NFL again. I think he should be in jail. That is my opinion as a sports watcher and as a dad and as a human being that is what I'm looking at. I'm not basing that on any kind of legal procedures or laws or rules or any agreed upon things. It's just what I feel should happen. At the same time, Roger Goodell is approaching this in much the same way that I do. Uh, he he, uh, just has decided that this is what should happen to Adrian Peterson. There was stuff in there about Peterson not really being contrite about what he's done, not really being sincere about, not even really saying that what he did was wrong. He's just saying that he did it. We all know what he did. And so you have the Peterson thing happening, the, the, the judgment really coming from Goodell himself, just as he was the one who... Uh, Handled and then rehandled, then mishandled, then attempted to rehandle the Ray Rice situation or the Josh Gordon situation, the player for the Cleveland Browns who kept smoking pot and got suspended for an entire year for smoking pot. Uh, And you had that whole rift between the idea that that the Ray Rice suspension, which was originally just a couple of games uh, before, before there was an, an outcry, and then it changed. Y- you have all this coming from the same guy, and it's a guy who sucks really bad at his job. Now, I I don't think Peterson should ever be allowed to play another down. I think he should get immediate psychiatric treatment. That's me. Um, but, but you have a guy. In Goodell, who's the head of the NFL Players Association or the executive director, DeMaurice Smith, uh, said after this Peterson ruling, Goodell is kind of making this up as he goes along. And that is absolutely true. And what's chilling, what's scary, what's sad, what's depressing, what's alarming, pick your gerund, is that it seems to just be in the wind. There doesn't seem to be methodology to it there there is a personal conduct policy and uh i heard a guy on on local sports radio here yesterday saying well you know an employer shouldn't interfere with a, a employee's life like this <laughs> i just i started screaming in my car <laughs> i was so mad but but still you have a a commissioner who's just going with what he feels like largely you get the sense that it's all a cynical response to the public reaction to what these people are doing and i don't want any blaming of twitter or social media or anything else those guys did what they did and what they did was horrible uh and i also will go on the record i'm glad that peterson got suspended as long as he did i think he should have gotten suspended a lot longer um Still, there is something kind of terrifying and union-busting about Roger Goodell wielding all this power. Now, the NFLPA is appealing the decision uh, to suspend Peterson. But do you know who's going to hear that appeal and you know who's going to rule upon the substance of that appeal? Roger Goodell. So (laughs) he's hearing an appeal against his own decision because that is the way power is consolidated in the National Football League. And this these are rules that were agreed to in collective bargaining where the the owners steamrolled the players. And uh, the Players Association went along with this or conceded this or groaned as this was, this heavy weight was placed upon them. So we have something happening in sports this week that's that's away from the court, from the field, from the from wherever the sports get played, the rinks, the arenas, um, because we have assertion of power. We have huge games being played. We have the assertion of power from the head of the NBA Players Association, and we have a huge uh, assertion of power going on from Roger Goodell, which has been going on for a very long time. And what these things have in common is that they're sports, really, They are one side trying to defeat the other side. It's like the Celtics against the Knicks or the Cowboys against the Steelers or the Red Wings against the Rangers, but it's labor and management. And that's a struggle that's going on in sports right now. And those sides... are. uh, are going to shake hands anytime they're in a room, but they are trying to crush each other. As sports fans, we need to watch that because this is a huge game. These are championship games going on because they will determine ownership of the sports that we follow. And I get the feeling we're only in the first quarter. All right, now, I don't want to leave you with sadness. And so I just want to tell you, if you get a chance, watch the Portland Trailblazers play basketball. I am so serious, you guys. I got this uh, NBA league pass this year. I've never had this before, where you get to watch a bunch of a bunch of local games. And I have kids, so there's homework and there's bedtimes and there's all this stuff. So I sometimes sit down and watch a game starting at like ten o'clock. So I watch a lot of West Coast games so far this season, and the Portland Trailblazers are amazing. It's a joy to watch. It is the poetry of sport. It is human athletic jazz creativity in action. And they have Robin Lopez, who I kind of thought we all agreed sucked really bad during all his seasons in Phoenix. Just the less talented Lopez brother, uh, Brooke Lopez of, of the Nets, was supposed to be the good one. And then Robin was the one who looked like Sideshow Bob and sucked real bad. He's playing for the Blazers and he's kind of amazing. And they're playing this... This kind of long-limbed ballet kind of basketball between him and LaMarcus Aldridge. You've got these kind of skinny guys with arms that go on forever. And then you've got Damian Lillard, which is a wonderful name phonetically and is a wonderful player shooting from the outside. And it's just beautiful. So I've been watching this team and uh, I really, I really recommend it. And I'm having conflicted feelings too about it because I am a longtime Seattle Supersonics fan and I'm supposed to hate the Blazers. So I'm having weird stirrings and I don't know what's happening in my soul. But if you get a chance and if you want to watch something beautiful, folks, watch the Portland Trailblazers. Let's talk to Sherman Alexi. Talking to Sherman Alexi, noted author, also the host of A Tiny Sense of Accomplishment, co-host with Jess Walter of that on the Infinite Guest Network. Hello, Sherman. Hey, John. How are you? I'm okay. We're a couple weeks into basketball season, into NBA basketball season, and I uh, thought I'd check in with you about what you're paying attention to or not paying attention to in the NBA season.
1: The big thing is the Shakespearean collapse of Kobe Bryant's career and reputation. Isn't it
0: wonderful?
1: I mean, he, you know, he's always been my Darth Vader. Yes. And, and it's gone to be even more than that. It's more than just sports now. It's like Orson Welles and Touch of Evil. That's, that's, <laughs> that's how bad he's gotten.
0: I, I was thinking about this. Can this whole collapse of the Lakers, who are evil, we all know this, uh, can it just be traced to Kobe Bryant being an impossible human being?
1: I think I think very much so. Uh, the fact is that he is unable to change his game and his ego at his advanced age in order to fit in with younger teammates. You know, it's one thing when he doesn't pass the ball when he's 32. It's a whole other thing when he's not passing the ball after nearly two years away. Right. And I watched that game last night against the Warriors when they were down by, I don't know, 40 at one point. And I'd never seen... Professional athletes look so demoralized and disinterested as Kobe's teammates did
0: last night. Why, uh, why do people hate Kobe so much? I mean, there's the there was the rape charge, which is obviously horrible. But uh, what is it about Kobe Bryant that engenders so much enmity? Do you think?
1: You know, I think in a, in a team sport, he, he thinks he's playing tennis. Right. I, I really think it is that he is so nakedly individualistic. And I I don't think there's ever been a pro athlete, so nakedly individualistic and so self-aware of his
0: self-obsession. Right. Do you think, too, it's it always strikes me as uh, as phony, too, like in the days when he was more smiling, and more apparently jovial. You just it's like Alex Rodriguez. You just got the sense that he thinks he's fooling you into thinking he's a great guy. (laughs)
1: <laughs> and there's not much character there, I don't think, either. Yeah. I mean, it's it, for me, one of the also tests in the world is when I'm out in the world playing basketball uh, over my, you know, sad, sad wrecked life career. But whenever you meet and play with somebody whose favorite player is Kobe Bryant, you know they're going to be awful on the court. <laughs> so, I mean, his influence extends into even the deepest recesses of the basketball world where... You know, some 38-year-old dude is wearing his Kobe Bryant jersey, oh. you know, in a city park and tossing up 25-foot fadeaways. So my hatred of Kobe Bryant extends, you know, even among middle-aged white dudes wearing his socks.
0: <laughs> here in the Twin Cities, I, I still see dudes walking down the street in Adrian Peterson jerseys. Oh, my god! Very, very recently. And you just think, well, what what's going on? <laughs> what kind of statement are we trying to make here?
1: Well, you know, the thing is, sports and religion get really confused, and people get really fundamentalist about their teams and their athletes, yep. and, and they become as uh, short-sighted and idiotic as every other fundamentalist. And, and they refuse to admit real-life morals and values into their sports fandom.
0: Right, right, because, they, because these aren't mortals who play the sports. They are, they are demigods.
1: Right, and, you know, it's just a game. It's just a game. It's just a game. And you can be sure that anybody who says it's just a game does not treat it that way.
0: <laughs> it's not treated as just a game. Well, how are you feeling about the, the Cleveland situation? Are you rooting for this whole LeBron, Love, Irving thing to work or to fail? Uh,
1: I'm I'm rooting for it. You know, it's it's interesting. I mean, LeBron is the opposite of Kobe Bryant. Right. You know, there's never been any indication of any private demons, any private sins. He seems to be a good husband and father and a good teammate and and a good person. And he's the best basketball player in the world. And I wonder where all the hate comes from. (laughs) Uh, And I'm not necessarily a huge fan of him, you know, as I would be of other players in my past. I don't think of him like I think of Dr. J, the way I love Julius Irving. But I love rooting for him simply to contradict all the people who don't like him.
0: Yeah, I never, like, I've never lived in Cleveland. I've never been part of that. But the idea that a young man who's a free agent wants to go make a lot of money and live in Miami for a little while was just completely understandable to me. I mean that's the American dream. Right. I wanted to do that also, but I have no
1: talent. Yeah, the the whole point of the United States I thought was for small town people to go big city.
0: Right, right. and then start spreading the news. Right. I'm leaving today. <laughs> I mean as a as a writer and a poet and somebody who works with characters, like what do you think then about the LeBron character's return to Cleveland?
1: Oh, I think I think that's even more American now. I think it's beautiful, yeah. and I really think it's beautiful now that suddenly Seemingly overnight, he's playing below the rim. Right. So I think there's this old man redemption thing going on now, too, where he's starting to look more like a blue-collar worker who's been, you know, (laughs) battered and shattered through, you know, a decade of hard-ass blue-collar labor. And and now he's you know slogging up and down the court, still getting it done. But he he looks like he's in pain sometimes.
0: Yeah, yeah. And and the hairline is receding a little bit more too. Well, he always looked forty five. He was <laughs> born at forty five. He's like Greg Oden, same thing. Yeah,
1: I'm rooting for him, on, and I you know and I think they're going to win the East, and then I think they're going to run into some West team that's going to kill him. Uh, and my yeah. only hope, you know, I'm having such an incredible year as as a Seattle sports fan because. Uh, Kobe and the Lakers are, are self-destructing and the Thunder are struggling without Durant and Westbrook who've been injured.
0: God, right, yeah, so, God you know, there's
1: Sonic, serious Sonics karma going on. It, for me, now, because I don't have a team anymore. I essentially have reverted to hate fandom. <laughs> I essentially root against people and that's where all my passion comes from.
0: Yeah. Well, I wanted to ask you about that because, uh, you know, I have met you a few times in Seattle. I lived in Seattle most of my life and... Uh, was a was a huge Sonics fan. How how are you doing with all this? Because I'm not doing well.
1: Uh, you know, it's interesting because I hadn't really noticed it, but my wife said this is the first season where I wasn't completely depressed. Wow. Through November. Oh. Uh, I, you know, so I I think uh, I don't know what stage I'm in <laughs> of grief, <laughs> uh, but I've gone past rage. Uh, and I'm nowhere near acceptance, okay, but good. Somewhere I'm somewhere in between there.
0: How about, uh, I, I know when when uh, the Seattle ownership group was trying to move the Sacramento Kings, you were on the record as saying that, that you were against that. You wanted the Kings to stay where they were. I assume you want the Milwaukee Bucks to also stay yeah, where they were. Yeah,
1: I are. mean, I, I want an expansion team, because if we take somebody's team, it's going to be the same thing that was done to us. Yeah. The, the, the you know economic theft of a team, completely legal, completely above board, and also in terms of sports fandom, utterly immoral. And and I couldn't stand the hypocrisy of my friends who were perfectly willing to support that move without even questioning
0: it. But okay, I'll be a devil's advocate for that, because what what if that is simply the reality of the NBA and the reality of sports—it's capitalism. It's vicious. Uh, you you take what you can get, and if somebody else suffers, well, then that's the way it goes. Uh,
1: that would make me a really bad liberal to support that. <laughs> yeah.
0: you you still strive for things to be fair.
1: If if I can't be a, if I can't live up to my philosophies and my politics in, in sports, which I love, then what's then why should I be watching? And I mean, I think it goes back to. Yeah. The things we were talking about earlier—you uh, can't let sports completely be separated from your real-life morality.
0: Right, right. You can't turn exactly. it into a cosmology. Exactly. When it's, when it's recreation, yeah. I, I want to ask you about writing too, because I know you've you've you write about basketball. You've written—I uh, was just reading your poem about uh, Walt Whitman and and basketball, and was just loving it all over again. Why do you think so much basketball writing is about intensity? Or like in popular culture, in movies, like it's Hoosiers. It's, it's like this very dramatic thing, whereas baseball gets to be uh, contemplative and, and pastoral.
1: Well, it's the pace of the game, certainly. And, and the fact is that theoretically a baseball game is infinity.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> there, there could really be a baseball game that lasts forever. Yeah, uh, And with, with basketball, there's a, a clock. But I think the intensity of the game. I mean, basketball really is the sport of poverty. Yeah. Basketball in the United States plays the same class function that soccer does in the rest of the world. It you know because all you need to play basketball is something resembling a hoop and something resembling a ball and any number of teammates.
0: Yeah. You don't. You don't need a glove. You, you don't, don't need, need money. a stick, You don't need a helmet. <laughs> and and so I think the intensity of it being a,
1: the sport of the poor. Uh, you know I think that even in the NBA you're talking about a lot of poor guys. Who've become millionaires, yeah. and and uh, so I think the class stuff, the the uh, intensity of the class struggle, uh, is a part of basketball, an inherent part of basketball, and that's not true with baseball at all. Baseball is the sport of money uh, in the United States. Certainly, right. when you start talking about the Latin American players, you're talking about poverty. But the sport as played in the United States is very much a, a sport of the suburbs.
0: A, a school that can afford to have a baseball field and a football field.
1: Exactly. Yeah.
0: What, was, uh, what was basketball like for you when you were growing up? What, what did basketball mean to you?
1: Well, I mean, I learned the first hoop I had was a Folgers coffee can with the bottom cut out, nailed to a pine tree, and we had a duct tape basketball. You know, if you could hit a three-pointer with that. <laughs> but my dad played. Oh, okay. Uh, so it really was a father and something on the reservation. And there wasn't a whole lot to do all the time, so basketball was often the only recreation.
0: <laughs> this this was in eastern Washington, right?
1: Yes, eastern Washington on the Spokane Indian Reservation where I grew up. And my father was a randomly employed blue-collar alcoholic and was undependable in all sorts of ways, in most ways, undependable emotionally and uh, every other way imaginable, but when it came to basketball, he was utterly consistent and present
0: ah, so you loved basketball,
1: yeah, so it was through basketball that my father was the best i mean that he became a good father. it was only inside of the game, and all those things around the game where he
0: was a good father and then you you played uh high school ball right, yeah, small town ball, yeah, and would uh what, what was what was that like like for for somebody growing up on the reservation. Uh, basketball is a pretty big deal in, ter- in terms of spectators.
1: Yeah, well, I, I left the reservation school for the white high school on the border, so I, I was the only Indian on the basketball team except for the mascot.
0: <laughs> what was the mascot? <laughs> the Indians. <laughs>
1: oh, God. <laughs> so uh, there were various points when I'd be on the basketball court with four redheads. It would be four redheads and me.
0: Go Indians.
1: <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh but it was it was a serious basketball town. We had a legendary high school coach named Gene Smith who ended up winning close to 900 games in his career and coached for nearly 40 years. Wow. Uh, so we had huge crowds. Our high school gymnasium, you know, in a town of about 1,500 people, our gymnasium sat 2,000. And uh, it used to be filled. You know, I, w- I was among the last generation. I think the, the guys after us filled it. But, uh, you know, we didn't even have that great a team my junior year, and we filled the gym. So, and our our girls' teams were also incredibly good, and they filled the gym. So I really wasn't a – Washington State version of Hoosiers.
0: <laughs> was that filled with people from the town or from the reservation or from both?
1: Uh, well, not the reservation because they had their own team and own school. It was from the town and from the surrounding communities and other towns. Yeah. You know, their fans cared just as much as well. So they would pack the visiting team side. Uh, basketball meant more then in small towns in Eastern Washington and certainly in Reardon it did. I don't see those same crowds. When I go back for games now, I don't see the same size crowds as I used to.
0: Why is that?
1: I, I don't know. Hmm. Uh, I really can't tell you. I, don't, I haven't lived there in 20 years, so I don't know how the culture has changed around small-town basketball.
0: I want to ask, too, about, about basketball on the reservation. Years ago, I, I traveled around with a theater company, and we spent a few weeks in reservation towns in Montana and the Dakotas. And I, I couldn't believe the influence of basketball in these places. And, and we've already talked about sports as religion. It really seemed to be that in these communities
1: in montana reservations basketball is is enormous and the best players indian basketball players in history have come out of uh montana reservations people like jonathan takes enemy and elvis old bull talk about great names uh yeah, great names can you imagine can you imagine if jonathan had made it to the nba uh, takes enemy to the ads <laughs> 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 and uh uh So yes, it is. You know, you talk about economic and social and political desperation. I mean, you're talking about Montana reservations, which are among the poorest places in the country. And basketball really becomes uh, uh, a religion, the only way to flee your desperate circumstances. And the warrior culture of those Montana Indians is, is really present in basketball, where, you know, every kid is dreaming of being the crazy horse of a basketball court. Uh, of proving themselves physically, of, of of winning that way, of counting coup, of, of being heroic and seen as heroic by your fellow tribal members. And basketball seems to be the only way to do that.
0: So basketball's a metaphor, or basketball is the thing?
1: Basketball, yeah, there's nothing metaphoric about basketball <laughs> among Indians. <laughs>
0: okay, okay.
1: I mean, th- th- we're talking transubstantiation, you know, this is the blood and flesh of Christ, not bread and wine.
0: Yeah, yeah. So then... Is I didn't know this about Montana. So is, is the Montana approach to basketball among the tribes different from eastern Washington or, or other places, Oklahoma?
1: You know, I, the best players come from Montana. So obviously there must be something to be said about the intensity of the, the ball playing that the best players have come from there, the legends. All the legends come from Montana. I mean, there have been great players from other places. But, if you start naming the top twenty Indian ball players of all time, i'm going to bet you eighteen of them come from montana wow
0: okay well I'll start paying more attention to the box scores coming out of montana
1: yeah but but yeah, but they never make it to uh the nBA they rarely make it to college because of social circumstances uh, they just can't handle college life and you know, there's an improvisational, free-form style among reservation basketball. Res ball is fast, and I mean it's really like jazz, uh, and it's really teammate-oriented, but it's also very individualistic. Uh, in fact, I think uh, Montana Indian basketball is very much like the NBA.
0: Yeah. Uh, in terms of speed.
1: In terms of speed and and style. Yeah. Uh, and and. The individualist exp- individualistic expression inside a team concept, where college ball is completely dominated by the coaches, right. who who run these you know highly disciplined sets that often handcuff incredibly gifted players.
0: Right, right.
1: And and I, I think it's into that environment where these these Indian kids come into this environment that's radically different on a social level, educational level. And then the thing they love most, the reason why they're there, basketball, they also run into these incredible cultural conflicts with this domineering coach who doesn't let them play like they want to play and play like their strengths uh, lead them to play. So it would be great if there was a Montana, I mean, I don't know that there's ever been an Indian player good enough to go from high school to pros. I'd be very curious. I don't think so, but... That would be the the most logical way for an Indian guy to make it to the pros, is to go directly there. Mm. And to skip the domineering little Napoleon college coach.
0: Is to skip the whole college system. (laughs) right? Have you played against, uh, in in that Montana type of situation as a player?
1: Yeah, growing up I, I played on traveling teams, all Indian teams, and played in Montana quite a bit. You know, I was I was a good player, but I was certainly no star like that. Yeah. Uh, you know, I could shoot and and you know I could run, but but those guys were playing nineteen levels above me. Uh-huh.
0: Um, you mentioned the uh, the Spokane Indians uh, <laughs> mascot that you played for. I, I have to ask you about the the Washington D.C. NFL team, Sherman.
1: Well, the Washington D.C. Well, my tribal high school on my reservation, it, their mascot is the Redskins as well.
0: Really. Still, yes. Wow. So, I mean, are how have you have how have you looked at this thing? Is it? I mean, this the Washington Redskins name has been around for decades upon decades, and then now it's it's really gotten a lot of attention and a lot of objection. How have you been watching that? Well,
1: we've been protesting this. The, the earliest protests were in the 1970s. Yeah. Uh, there was another big protest movement in the 1980s, so this is not new. Yeah, uh, the protests against the uh, mascot are not new. The internet just makes it seem like it's new.
0: <laughs> well, why do? You, yeah, I mean, why why is it getting more momentum now? Do you think?
1: Uh, because I think white people are listening to us.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: And and sports writers are listening to us.
0: Well, do you think it's okay for the the team on the reservation to have that name, but not the Washington NFL team? No,
1: I don't think so. That's right, either. Yeah. Fact, I think it's a, I think it's a shameful example of self-hatred. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, whenever I talk to this about, to people, what I always say is, you know, would you, you know, would you refer to me as a redskin? If I'm debating somebody, I ask them that. Right. For the rest of this debate, I would, I would prefer you call me redskin or Mr. Redskin. <laughs> See how
0: that goes over. Or,
1: or maybe chief or brave <laughs> or, or uh, uh, just say you Indian. Just call me you Indian. Right. Uh, And nobody's ever taken me up on it because, of course, calling me redskin over and over during the course of the debate will merely reveal what redskins is. Uh, I mean, how do I know that redskins is a racial insult? Because it's only been used toward me as a racial insult all of my life. Yeah, From the earliest memories, whenever somebody was racially insulting me, they called me a redskin, you you know, with the the, uh, curse word in front of it.
0: (laughs) So then, I mean, how have you looked at that? football team your whole life then? I mean, is, is it always just felt...
1: Oh, rooted, compl- always rooted against him. Yeah. I mean, I think there was, wasn't there one year when the in- Cleveland Indians and the Atlanta Braves played in the World Series? I think there was, yeah. And I was, I was hoping for earthquake. <laughs>
0: so do you draw non-fatal earthquakes that would prevent the series from being played? Right. Do you draw a distinction then like is is the name of the Washington NFL team more objectionable to you than The name
1: itself is more objectionable than the
0: Cleveland or Atlanta or Kansas the, City. The
1: Wahoo, the Chief Wahoo image for the Cleveland Indians is outright racism. Yeah. Uh you know, you put Sambo and uh Charlie Chan and the Frito Bandito images up next to the Cleveland Indians mascot, and they match. I mean, the only reason these mascots are allowed to exist is because we Indians have such little cultural power.
0: So it's, it's that same uh, self-hatred that you're talking about with the reservation team.
1: Yeah. To, you know, in the absence of more positive images, we grab onto whichever ones we can.
0: Yeah. Do you think it's going to change
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, thousands of teams have changed. Yeah. Thousands of teams have, have dropped their mascots. I mean, Stanford did it in the 70s. So uh, it's gonna, it continues. Teams do it constantly. St. John's uh,
0: University, I remember.
1: Yeah. And, and uh, the NCAA you know, certainly made it clear. You, they won't have any scheduled tournaments, postseason tournaments, in, at schools which have racial mascots. Yeah. So it's, it's going to change. And the people clinging to it are just going to look more and more like racist idiots.
0: Um yeah yeah i think that's that sounds about right
1: and it's always you know it's always ama- you're honoring it's honoring do you really think uh the uh the white men of the 1920s and thirties were really racially progressive <laughs> folks who saw uh, minorities in honorable ways
0: yeah well even the idea of a of a mascot in general calling your team anything anything at all is is a process of objectification, I mean, or of of de-anthropomorphization, I suppose.
1: Yeah, and you know, I always get those arguments, well, you know, cowboys shouldn't be insulted, and, well, cowboys is a job. Right. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And cowboys are actually multiracial.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, Well, Sherman, it's great to talk to you, as always. Tell me about what you're doing with uh, Tiny Sense of Accomplishment.
1: (laughs) You know, well... You know they contacted me to do a podcast uh, uh you know, I give a good interview i guess and <laughs> and but the thing is I didn't want to do it alone and and my friend Jess Walter and I you know who's a great writer and a great person, I knew we would have the kind of chemistry where it would just sound like two guys talking
0: books and sports uh-huh. uh,
1: you know my wife, I think describes it best. she says it's like car talk, except with books
0: <laughs> it, yeah that that's a pretty strong analogy
1: yeah and and I I guess, and we really wanted to demystify the writing process.
0: So this is about, so the the name, A Tiny Sense of Accomplishment, refers to a a writer getting something done,
1: is that right? Right, Writer getting something done. Yeah. And that was, well, that was the original impetus was the idea of artistic accomplishment. But, you know, since we've been doing the show, we're interviewing different kinds of folks, too. We interviewed one of my wife's friends about her back injury and her rehab and return from that, and... Uh, we've interviewed uh, one of my friends who'd moved off the reservation for the first time in years for a job and for a job in the city and the way in which, you know, how do you measure accomplishment that way or, or struggling with mental illness? What's a good day yeah. when you're dealing with bipolarism? So I guess you could say a tiny sense of accomplishment is a metaphor for the human condition.
0: What's, uh, what's been your latest tiny sense of accomplishment?
1: Oh my gosh. Uh, I I have also been dealing with a back injury, Ah. and I haven't been able to play a lot of basketball, but I recently stepped onto the court in an official game, a City League game again. Uh So I'm back on the court. I'm old and slow and fat, and my back doesn't move, but I'm on the court again.
0: (laughs) That's an accomplishment.
1: That's a very tiny sense of accomplishment.
0: Sherman Alexi, great to talk to
1: you. Thank you, John.
0: Now uh, I know Christmas is coming up, and Hanukkah, and Kwanzaa, and Christmaska, and whatever else you want to celebrate. Solstice, it is a gift-giving time of year. Uh, I do have one option. Uh, just an op- I'm not telling you you should buy this, but I have written a book called Dear Luke, We Need to Talk, Darth. And it is pop culture correspondences, the long-lost notes and letters and emails and uh, sets of documents that I have completely made up for various pop culture institutions. And uh, it makes a lovely gift, and it's funny, I think. I'm told. I'm told it's funny. So I wanted to just read you a sports-themed one now. This is from a running bit throughout the entire book, but I'll read you the first part of it. Rejected Super Bowl Halftime Show Proposals. Super Bowl's... Super Bowl I. Folk icon Bob Dylan submitted a proposal to play a set of songs with his guitar plugged into an electric amplifier. The committee, vomiting with rage, felt that this would be an act tantamount to Judas betraying Jesus Christ, which is certainly not the ideal tone for what it hopes will be an institution. John Lennon submitted a proposal to spend the halftime explaining his remarks about being more popular than Jesus. The committee is of the opinion that this would be kind of a downer. If the Beatles were to perform, that would be one thing, but otherwise, no thank you. Arizona State University and Grambling State University marching bands were hired instead, along with Al Hurt. Seriously. Super Bowl II, January 14th, 1968. Upon receiving the submission for a musical tribute to The Graduate, the committee certainly weighed the possibility... The Graduate was the top-grossing film of the last year, and it featured a lovely soundtrack by folk duo Simon and Garfunkel. While the committee feels that the music is perhaps a bit too mellow for a football stadium full of fans, the real problem was the proposed staging. Dustin Hoffman shows no apparent background as a song-and-dance man. Also, the large plate-glass window scene would be hard to erect and safely haul away and the committee fears that a feeling of directionless American pathos would be difficult to convey at Miami's Orange Bowl. Grambling State University's marching band was brought back. Sweet Lord, how the committee loves that grambling marching band. Super Bowl III, January 12, 1969. The Supremes are a well-known and very talented singing group, but the committee was reluctant to accept their proposal to reenact the 1968 election. Leaving aside the obvious dissonance of having a black woman, Flo Ballard, play George Wallace, the committee simply could not imagine Diana Ross being an effective Richard Nixon. Led Zeppelin's Salute to Rosemary's Baby created similar fears of inexact casting. Florida State University's marching band was used though many committee members were a little misty-eyed, missing the grambling band. So that's the first three Super Bowls. I do cover all 48 Super Bowls to date in this book, which, uh, when I started writing that bit, seemed, you know, kind of fun. And then I realized, oh God, I got to write 48 of these. So enjoy that if you can. Dear Luke, we need to talk. Darth by me, available where fine books are sold. And probably where lousy books are sold, too. But I think it's, this one's an okay one. Turning to the rest of sports just before we go here. Well, another update in the beer mile. We brought you news before about uh, the, the women's world record being set in the beer mile. Not everybody can, uh, can compete effectively in the beer mile. In fact, Lance Armstrong disgraced cyclist attempted a beer mile recently in the super masters category 40 years old and up he chugged a beer and ran a lap well behind everybody else and when he grabbed the second beer you got to do four of them he had to drop out he said that was not what i expected not so easy is it lance it's, uh, yeah, Beer Mile. we gotta, we got to do more coverage of the Beer Mile. i gotta get, I got to get the company. i got to get Infinite Guest to send me on a Beer Mile fact-finding mission. Or maybe we'll have one here in, in Minnesota in the dead of winter and then I'll die in snowbanks. The producer of Home Dunk is Nina Patak. We get help from all sorts of people all around Minnesota Public Radio and American Public Media. Check out more podcasts at infiniteguest.org. I'm John Moe. Bye now.